Beloved, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew 6, we're going to be uh, using really Matthew 6, 33 as a kind of launching pad to talk about what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. But I do want us to see some of the context here. Look with me uh, at beginning in verse 25. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25 and reading uh, through verse 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, would you, by your grace, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and to respond to all that is found here in your word. And even as we launch into a new year, we want to do so filled with your spirit and living for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. People seek first what they value most. People seek first what they value most. We prioritize what is most important to us. We pursue first what we love the best. But sometimes we get our priorities mixed up, don't we? Don't we? We wake up one day and realize that we are not actually seeking first that which we declare to value the most and are not prioritizing that which we claim is of greatest importance to us. It's not a good place to be, is it? For many, this realization motivates some kind of change, a change of focus, a a change of behavior, a change of habit, a, a change of diet, a change of mindset, a change of schedule, a change of relationships. Uh, Perhaps a change of allegiance. Of course, when a new year dawns, it's a natural time to reflect upon one's life. One's life in the past and one's life going into the future. It's a customary time to consider the reordering of priorities. That is, aligning our priorities with their highest aims and goals, with our highest aims and goals. That's where New Year's resolutions come in. 
Millions of people make them. Millions of people make them. Very few keep them. Very few keep them. Crowded gyms and new diets in January and empty gyms and broken diets in March testify to this. I saw a funny graphic where one cat asked another cat, what are New Year's resolutions? And the answer was, they are a to-do list for the first week of January. There's truth to that. But for serious Christians, resolutions take on a different focus and are born out of biblical conviction. They focus on more than physical fitness and decluttering the home, as important as those things are and that we all desire. You see, these resolutions made by Christians are spiritual in nature. They are informed by God's Word and make the glory of God the highest aim. Christians make resolutions, or if you want to call them renewed commitments, to spiritual fitness and the decluttering of our hearts and our minds and our lives for the purpose of being more grateful and more faithful Christians in the new year and beyond. How many of us in this room want to be more thankful and more obedient and more useful and more faithful Christians in the new year? I think that we would all want this if we are in Christ. Now, just as it is difficult uh, to get back into physical shape when bad eating habits and a sedentary lifestyle have become the norm, so it is also hard, it's difficult to get back into a spiritual frame when we've let worldly patterns of thinking and living distract us or consume us for a considerable time. You see the correlation. We've all known this, right? We've all known what it is to put on a few pounds and want to go into the gym to get those pounds off. And we realized that taking those four months off was probably not a good idea. And when you walk out of the gym, or perhaps better yet, the next morning, you realize it was really not a good idea because you're extremely sore. Because those muscles that you worked out for the first time in four months were not used to working out. And they are saying, I don't like this. This is abnormal. This is different. And so your body is, is sort of crying out against it. Well, the same goes for our diets. The same goes for other parts of our lives that we have sort of let go. Well, as Christians, we should never let our spiritual lives and formation, we should never let it go. But if we are honest, sometimes that happens. Sometimes we have allowed that to be our, our most important priorities to be marginalized in our lives. So what we are considering this morning is not easy, but it's right. It's not easy, but it's right. It's right for every sincere believer. And who said that Christianity was meant to be easy anyway? Who said that discipleship was meant to be easy? Well, you could say, well, pastor, I'm reading a lot of books that sort of say that it's supposed to be that way. The, you know, the five keys to this, the seven keys to that. If the title of a book ever says that, you know that they're doing false advertising. 
because there, there's never some formula you punch in and then your Christian life just sort of coasts and everything is great. Life is just not like that. Really, a better picture of the Christian life is a pioneer sort of making your way to the promised land, and there are all kinds of dangers along the way. Really, Pilgrim's Progress is a wonderful analogy of the Christian life in, in so many ways. It reminds us that the Christian life is hard. Discipleship is hard. The Bible doesn't teach us that it's easy. In fact, quite the opposite. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, a little later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, says this, quote, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. Now listen. For the gate is wide and the way is what? Easy. <laughs> that leads to destruction. The gate is wide and the way is is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So much we could say about that verse. But what I want us to recognize this morning, first and foremost, is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in the person and redemptive work of Christ alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He has done it for us. But united to Christ, freed from the dominion of sin and the clutches of Satan, we are called and empowered. So not just called, but empowered by the Spirit to live according to the narrow way of God's Word. Is Christ going to command us to do something that we are not supposed to do or we're supposed to shrug our shoulders at and say, well, that's just hard. I'm not going to listen to that. Well, of course not. In Christ, as a disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to walk the narrow way. And that narrow way is hard. And few walk there. And so if you're going to go with the crowd, you need to know that you're going on the broad way. If you go with those who follow Christ, you're going the hard way. It's a challenging way. We see that reinforced everywhere in God's Word. Christians are not supposed to live as those swept up in the strong current of the world's values and priorities and pleasures. Rather, we are to swim against the current, and that's hard. You jump into a, a, a river where there's a strong current, perhaps rapids, and you're, you're trying to go the opposite direction. That's hard. But it's always glorifying to God. It's always right. It's always the most fulfilling life for the believer, no matter what hardships we may face. Let me say that again. It's always the most fulfilling life for a Christian believer, no matter what kind of hardships we might face. It's always right by grace through faith, resting in Christ alone for salvation, to walk in the narrow way according to God's word and for his glory, whatever hardships we may face. And we will never do this to any serious degree unless we are first and foremost born again. Unless we are first and foremost born again. 
If you're sitting here this morning and you're not compelled to walk the narrow way, you don't desire this life in Christ, that it is unappealing to you to walk on that pioneer road from suffering to glory, to go against the grain, to go against the current, then it's likely, dear one, that you are not born again, that you are still in your sins, that you are still under the captivity of the world, the flesh and the devil, that your heart longs for the opposite of what God wants and longs for for your own life. We need to be born again. That's the first thing. We, when we talk about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, an, an, a person who is not a Christian, who isn't born again, isn't going to do that, isn't going to desire that because they are, as Paul says, dead in their transgressions and sins. And so the first thing to say today is if this is not something that you are compelled to want, that you desire, my encouragement to you is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sins. And look to Christ for forgiveness and grace. Bow down to the lordship of Christ by grace through faith. So we will never do this to any serious degree. That is, seek first the kingdom of God and have Christian priorities of discipleship unless we're born again. Secondly, we will never do it if we don't have our priorities straight. So there's a sense in which there can be weak believers, those with the seed of faith, as it were, but their priorities are just always sort of out of, out of whack. Um, and we want to think about that this morning as we think about the new year. And here it is, New Year's Day, and we're all thinking about a fresh start and, and uh, renewed commitments and resolutions and such. Well, it could be argued, as the title of my uh, sermon suggests it could be argued that the ultimate resolution for every Christian is found in Matthew six thirty three. The ultimate re- resolution is found in Matthew six thirty three. That is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Is that the way someone would describe you if they if they looked at your life? If they had a video, sort of, you know, you're on a reality TV is the big thing now, right? What if someone did a reality TV show on your life, but actually you didn't know the camera was there? That's what makes reality TV so goofy, is that the camera's there the whole time. How, how real is it that someone's following you around with a camera? Are you really acting normal? Are you acting like you always would? I doubt it. But if someone were, were, were there, would they say, your life is one of seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, I know there, there are those that would say, well, pastor, you know, I don't know. I mean, what does that even mean? Glad you asked. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Because there are very simple identifiers and marks of a Christian who is seeking first the kingdom of God. And, of course, you can never look into the heart of hearts and know if someone's doing it with a heart of faith that is, faith in Christ alone for salvation and wanting to to give thanks to Him with a life of fruitfulness rather than trying to earn God's grace and salvation, which we cannot do, which we'll talk about in 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 a few moments. But there are markers, there are ways that we can see if someone is seeking the kingdom of God. Why is this an ultimate resolution, to seek first the kingdom of God? Because it declares primary allegiance to Christ 
and his kingdom priorities. This, once again, declares, seeking first the kingdom of God, declares primary allegiance to Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and King, and to his kingdom priorities. To his kingdom priorities. And this encompasses all of life. But again, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all of life? Well, it sounds grand, but how do we do this practically? Well, this morning I want us to get very practical. I want us to consider tangible and measurable ways that we can seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Before we go on, I want to ask you a question. Why do you think God sent his son Jesus into the world? Why do you think God sent his son Jesus into the world? If you were to ask that question sort of uh, broadly, even in broad evangelicalism, you would get a constellation of answers. Some say it was simply to be a good example, to show solidarity with mankind. It was simply to, to teach us one of many pathways to, to salvation. But we know these things are not true at all. No, God sent his son into the world to save us from the power and the penalty of our sins. Christ came to rescue us We needed rescuing. We need rescuing from sin and death and hell. And Christ rescued us by giving himself in our place as a sacrifice on the cross, as a wrath bearer, as one who would stand in our place and receive what we deserve, namely the wrath and curse of God. Now listen, Christ gave himself for us not only for the forgiveness of sins and so that we would have a right standing with God, but to bring us back into fellowship and communion with God because that fellowship and communion was broken because of sin. So a major aspect of our salvation is that Christ saved us to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into fellowship and communion with God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that God, quote, through Christ reconciled us to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. That's good news. Amen? He doesn't count our trespasses against us because Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And so the sins that we have committed, are committing, and will commit will not be counted against us because they were counted against Christ on Calvary. He bled and died for your salvation. And so we are in Him. God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ. We were alienated from God because of our guilt and sin, but now, through faith in Christ, we are restored to fellowship and communion with God. Therefore, and please get this, this is so vital, seeking first the kingdom of God is seeking first God himself. Seeking first the kingdom of God is seeking first God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, if you have never read Communion with God by John Owen, take a moment to repent, and then right after the service, order that book. Communion with God by John Owen. It is 
outstanding. It, 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 it changed my approach to the Christian life when I read it probably 25 years ago. It, it, it explains how God in his three persons and yet one God is how we approach him in fellowship and how we commune with God the Father who is love, who we, as we commune with God the Son, who is grace, and as we commune with God the Spirit, who is our comfort. And it's on those, those sort of titles of each person of the Godhead that we come into fellowship with God and that we are blessed and encouraged uh, and whereby we commune with Him in spirit and according to His truth. Seeking first the kingdom is pursuing daily fellowship with God. This, of course, begins in our lives personally, and then it's in our homes, as families, and it is with God's people in the visible church. Those are the, uh, the divisions I want to consider this morning. Seek first the kingdom of God through communion with God, first of all, personally, personally. In his two letters to Timothy, the Apostle Paul exhorts his young disciple to keep his spiritual priorities straight. Interestingly, he even mentions bodily exercise in relation to his walk with God, a kind of comparison. He, he writes in 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Spending four hours in the gym might make you look real good this side of heaven, but it has no eternal benefits if that's all you got. You can work out to the glory of God, but if you simply work out, and you're caught up in what the world considers most valuable and important, then you're, you're working out. But in the end, it does not make you right with God. It does not give you the forgiveness of sins. We are to train ourselves for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Any kind of training, whether physical or spiritual, is best done on a daily schedule. Habits and discipline take time to solidify. They take time to take root. Therefore, we must ask, what can we do? Ask yourself, what can I do to grow in godliness in this new year and beyond? To strengthen your spiritual muscles. That you would be more grateful, obedient, and faithful in your walk with the Lord, in your communion with God. In other words, how can we become more like Christ, even as we trust Christ alone for our salvation? Well, the first thing I want to uh, encourage you with this morning is to spend daily time with God. To spend daily time with God. What does this mean, one might ask? It, it, some think that uh, it's you know, having just a time of silence to listen to God's still, small voice. Whatever that is. What is that even? No, it's not sitting quietly trying to listen for God's still, small voice. Because if you start hearing voices, come see me. I think it was John Piper who said, if you want to hear God speak, 
audibly than read the Bible out loud. You see, spending time with God means setting aside a little time every day, preferably in the morning, to engage in devotional exercises, seeking first the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God. This means opening our Bibles and reading a portion of God's Word, thinking about, meditating upon what you read, and responding to the Lord in prayer. This time with God is exceedingly precious. It provides daily truth and wisdom and strength and comfort and direction at the very outset of your day. Begin your day with God, and you will launch into your day with the right launch code put in. It's as simple as that. And yet so often we allow our lives to become so fast and busy and distracted that we have time for all kinds of things, but we don't have a little time with the Lord. In Mark 1.35, we learn that our Lord himself, our Lord Jesus himself, rose early in the morning and went out to a quiet place to pray to his Father, to commune with him. He was, of course, facing great pressures and temptations on, the, on his road to Calvary. So he sought fellowship with his heavenly Father. Christ is a wonderful model for us in this. We need to put on the armor of God daily, and we cannot put on the armor of God if we aren't spending time with God in Bible reading and prayer. I think of Christians all over the world who would long to have a Bible in their own language and still do not. Christians who are imprisoned without their Bible because they were serving Christ and their Bible is stripped from them and they don't have their Bible with them. Think about all the, the ways in which Christians who perhaps are poor and don't, can't afford a Bible in different parts of the world. We ourselves are so exceedingly blessed not just with one Bible, but many of us will have numerous Bibles on our shelves. And yet, do we read them? Do we read them? There are many Bible reading plans, of course, you can access. I would encourage you to get on Ligonier Ministries' website and see the myriad Bible reading plans they offer there. Uh, one that you can think about is if you want to read the Bible in one year, read three chapters a day and five on Sunday. Three chapters a day and five on Sunday, you will have read through the entire Bible in one year. I remember in times uh, in India, when uh, spending time with a missionary there who was in his mid-70s and had been in India for over 50 years, and uh, he read through the Bible once every year. And so when I had asked him, uh, Pastor Dorsey, how many times have you read your Bible? He said, well, boy, he called me boy. Well, boy, I've been reading my Bible once a year. My whole Christian life, he said, so it's probably 50-something times I've read through the Bible. What a wonderful way to have Bible intake. There are other slower plans where you can sort of read you know, slower and do a two-year or three-year Bible reading plan. Uh, get a good study Bible with notes. If you don't have one, speak to me. I'd love to encourage you uh, with that and to, uh, to point you in the right direction. Read your Bible. Is it too elementary to say such a thing to Reformed Presbyterians? It's not. I've been a pastor too long. I've been a Christian too long. 
knowing that we all get in slumps and we all begin to set these important things and these priorities aside. There are devotional resources. The Be Thou My Vision collection of prayer and readings are outstanding for this. I would encourage you to think about that. And then prayer books are helpful as well. Uh, perhaps you've heard of A Way to Pray by Matthew Henry, which, which is a wonderful collection of prayers that he wrote over the course of his ministry on all different kinds of subjects and topics. And really, it's just an echoing back of God's word. It's just filled with God's word, these prayers. And then, of course, Valley of Vision by, uh, by, uh, by Puritans who wrote these prayers over the centuries. Another thing I want to mention this morning uh, in terms of devotional exercises is the reading of good books. Uh, I almost feel like um, I'm throwing pebbles at Godzilla by mentioning reading in our current day. Uh, It almost seems like a lost cause because so few read anymore. The massive consumption of social media and digital media through cable uh, stations and, and apps, it is an avalanche. And I think a lot of Christians have just given up and have gotten into terrible habits, and they're just accepting that this is the way it's going to be. It's got to be this way. If I'm be able to relate to people, it's got to be this way. Well, that's not true. And I want to challenge everyone in this room and anybody who's listening online to read in the new year to read Christian biography, to read books on doctrine, to read books um, on the Christian life. Uh, we in our men's Bible study had been reading, have been in our reading, Knowing Christ, uh, a book on Christology and the different attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been absolutely phenomenal. And we read three or four pages before each study and we come and it's just, it's simple. It's just a few pages a week and it's been such a blessing. I'm reading a book right now by Tony Reinke uh, called God, Technology, and the Christian Life. How applicable is that to our day? We need to be thinking about these things as Christians and how to relate to our culture and how to stand firm in our culture where technology, particularly digital technology, is, is, uh, is so overbearing. Do you know, I did a little math, not on my own, I used a calculator. Do you know if you read five pages a day, in 2023, that you will have read 1,825 pages. And you know that equals nine 200-page books. I would guess that many in this room did not read one book last year. Now, here's the thing. You read just five pages a day, you read nine books. You read 10 pages a day, which still isn't much. That's almost 20 books in 2023. You do a little more than that, which is also not a big deal, And you'll be reading a whole lot and perhaps longer books. Think of how much time is often wasted on trivial things. We spend many hours a week scrolling through endless social media accounts and watching silly programs and sometimes uh, uh, dedicate no time at all to the reading of good literature and thinking about things that count or, more importantly, having morning devotions. The glow of our screens has displaced the glory of Christ in our lives. I want to ask you, has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? I think if we are honest in this room, it's happened to every single one of us in one way or another. 
Are we seeking first the kingdom of God through personal communion with God and the pursuit of his wisdom and truth in our lives? Would you agree that our culture has become more aggressive in its secularism and its pushing it upon us and our children? Yes or no? (laughs) Yes or no? (laughs) Yes. That's a hearty yes. It is extraordinary what the world is seeking to do in the lives of our families, in our homes, through the television and through entertainment and through the grooming of our children and perverted people up front and parents bringing their children to, to listen to uh, drag story hour and, and, and hospital systems encouraging four-year-old sex changes. And this kind of stuff is happening right down the street in our own hospital system. It's madness what the world is doing, and they're pushing it upon us, and they're demanding that we capitulate to it, that we embrace it, that we celebrate it. Do you think that it's time now more than ever that we take seriously our own personal walks with the Lord in the way that we are having spiritual formation and being more and more conformed to the image of Christ through our Bible reading and through the learning of good doctrine and being encouraged by Christians in the past who stood firm and did not give in to the wicked ways of the world, who did not give in to the siren call saying, come, come this way, Uh, enjoy the pleasures of the world. Think of the areas of your life, the flabbiness, as it were, that can be cut out spiritually. What necessary Um, what unnecessary distractions to your walk with God can you remove? What habits are holding you back from godliness? What secret sin that has taken root in your heart is holding you back? We cannot grow in the Lord if we are holding on to secret sin. We just can't do it. It's like turning on your windshield wipers and there are no wipers there. And they just scratch against the surface. And they don't do anything with the rain. You cannot grow in the Lord if you have secret sin in your life. We are called in Ephesians 5.16 to, quote, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now listen, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. We will never do this perfectly. We will never do this as we ought. We will never rise to God's standard. That's why we will come to the Lord's table this morning. To be reminded that we are united to Christ and it's his blood and righteousness alone by grace through faith that gives us a right standing with God. But in Christ, united to him, as Christian believers, we are called to a life of discipleship. That life is narrow, it is hard, it is difficult, it takes time, it takes energy, and we must do it. And when we do, it is the greatest joy. And when we get caught up in all the world and start getting floating along with the current of the world, we are, we are not joyful. We are under the guilt 
of knowing that we shouldn't be living like that. So what needs to change in your life? What needs to be cut out of your daily schedule? What needs to be added so that you can better commune with God and cultivate greater godliness and shine brighter for the Lord in a world that so desperately needs the gospel? The second area of our lives I want to consider this morning is our homes. Our homes. How, how do our home lives reflect our seeking first the kingdom of God? Well, one of the clearest ways that we can make the kingdom of God, that which we seek first in our homes and in our families, is observing the Christian Sabbath the Lord's Day. Again, I feel like I'm throwing pebbles at King Kong by bringing up this. Uh, there has been a lot of conversation in the Reformed world amongst those who still hold to Reformed confessionalism that we have lost the Lord's Day. It has been consumed by sports and commercialism. But that doesn't mean we need to give it up because it's the fourth commandment, and it's a gift from God. If our homes are going to be structured and oriented toward God, then the cadence and rhythm of our weekly schedule need to be the weekly observance of the Lord's Day. God gave us, He gave you and your families, the Lord's Day, the first day of every week, so that we would not forget Him. Remember the Lord's day to keep it holy means remember the Lord. Because we forget Him. We get distracted. Our minds get cluttered. We begin to listen to the lies of the world. And we forget the Lord. And so the Lord's day is a, a kind of reboot every week that the Lord has given us on the first day of the week, the day that Christ rose from the dead, in order to launch us into our week remembering that we are loved by God and kept by God and He's maturing us and strengthening us by His Spirit and Word. He gave us this day so that we would know that work is not God and so that sports is not God and recreation is not God and consumerism is not God and we are not God. That's why He's given us this day to remind us that we are not God. God is God. And we come here on the Lord's Day to remember that and to remind each other of that as we sing to His glory. Set this day apart for worship and fellowship and rest. And know this, the very orientation and attitudes of our homes will be Godward and not manward. Don't underestimate the importance of the Lord's Day. Don't underestimate the importance of the Lord's Day. Don't underestimate it for the spiritual formation of your children as you devote the entire day to the Lord. There are obviously times, providential hindrances, we like to call them, when we cannot be with God's people on the Lord's Day. If your elderly mother falls and breaks her arm on the way into church, you don't say, well, Mom, we'll see you. We'll be back in a couple of hours. We're going to keep the Lord's Day holy. I hope you'll be okay. No, there are works of mercy 
works of piety and works of necessity that we must do. But this doesn't mean, of course, that we throw out the Lord's Day for the next recreational activity or the next way in which we will come up with that we'll, we'll disregard the day that the Lord has made for us. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says, quote, Let us never forget that our feelings about Sundays are sure tests of the state of our souls. The person who can find no pleasure in giving God one day in the week is manifestly unfit for heaven. Heaven itself is nothing but an eternal Sabbath. If we cannot enjoy a few hours in God's service once a week week in this world, it is plain that we could not enjoy an eternity in His service in the world to come. They shall find Christ and a blessing while they live, and Christ and glory when they die. Listen to what Sir Walter Scott, that great theologian from Scotland, said. Um, Give the world one half of Sunday, and you will soon find that religion has no stronghold on the other half. And then finally, Voltaire, the French atheistic philosopher. Listen to what he says. There is no hope of destroying the Christian religion while the Christian Sabbath is acknowledged and kept by men as a sacred day. In other words, destroy the Lord's Day and destroy Christianity. That's why it's an absolutely terrible idea for churches to cancel church worship on Christmas. You're basically saying that the Lord's Day really has no significance. It's the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. Secondly, in addition to making the Lord's Day holy, and observing the Lord's Day in your home through attendance to worship, conduct regular times of family worship. Conduct. We have so many uh, young families in this church, and it's so applicable to them, but it's applicable to all of us, even empty nesters, those with roommates. I remember when I was single and, and uh, uh, playing soccer up in Charlotte, and I lived with four other guys. Um, uh, we got together and, and spent time together in prayer and, and Bible reading. And so th- you can do this in all different kinds of contexts where you're living. But family worship is so important. And it used to be a common practice amongst believers. But we need to recover this. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Who is this being directed to? The head of the home. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you do this? Well, there are all kinds of ways to do it, but one practical way a way that's been practiced throughout history, which is in our directory for public worship in the Westminster Standards, is family worship. Listen to what Donald Whitney says. Quote, Consistent father-led family worship is one of the best, steadiest, and most easily measurable ways to bring up children in the Lord's discipline and instruction. Now, once again, remember these two words, narrow and hard. Family worship is not 
easy. Can I get an amen from all the young families here? (laughs) It is not easy. It's challenging. Sometimes it's family war by the end of family worship. Kids are screaming, disobedient, and it's hard. But over time, it does get easier, and it's always right, and it's always a blessing. It should never be a replacement for the gathered church, of course. And family worship should never be a kind of theological lecture. It should be brief. It should be clear. I want to get just real practical here for a few minutes. Here is a kind of liturgy for family worship. Number one, choose a time and place. Choose a time and place to have it. Sometime after dinner is good. Sit down with your family, uh, perhaps in the living room, perhaps it's around the dinner table. Get into a groove, a habit about where and when you will meet. Secondly, sing. Sing hymns, sing psalms, sing children's songs. Sing the hymn of the month or the psalm of the month in order to incorporate church life into your family worship. Buy hymnals and psalters for your home. Get your kids familiar with the great hymns of the faith and with the psalms. When your children are young, they love repetition. Sing the same thing over and over so they learn the words and learn the tunes. They will grow to love those hymns and tunes. If you're tone deaf, uh, find the music to the hymns on a computer and turn up the computer really loud. And sing along with it. Don't let your lack of singing ability stop you from singing. Thirdly, catechesis or the use of the catechism, especially when the children are are very young, use the shorter catechism as a part of your family devotions and memorization. Fourthly, memorize scripture. Fifthly, uh, draw from church history. There are some wonderful children's church history books where you can bring up for two or three minutes uh, one of the great men or women from church history to be an encouragement to our children as they grow to hear about the true heroes, the true heroes. The true heroes aren't the ones making $150 million and slam dunking a basketball. That's not a hero. That's an athlete who's fun to watch, but it's not a hero. And so we need to, to cultivate heroes in the lives of our families and our children. We do that by drawing on church history. Of course, sixthly, we want to read our Bible or a chi- and or a children's Bible. Read through a passage of Scripture. When the children are over, uh, older, have them read some of that Scripture. And then seventh, give some brief instruction on that. What the verse means, how it applies. Don't make it overly long. However, when there are moments when the kids seem especially attentive and may ask good questions, you may take a little more time. But reinforce, reinforce the gospel every time you get together in family worship as well. Reinforce the gospel. May that be the center of your family worship. And then pray. Pray. Take requests for prayer. Take turns for prayer. Prioritize your prayers. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for your pastor, please. Pray for the needs of the church. Incorporate again church life into your family worship so it's seamless. And finally, what we do in our families, we sing the doxology or the Gloria Patri to end our time. So have a structure to it, something that your kids will recognize and identify with and that will incorporate some of church life with. This can be anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, depending on how much you choose to do. This is seeking first the kingdom of God and practical measurable ways. Listen to what the Barna Group says 
actually, um, this is Donald Whitney writing, but he's quoting from the Bonner Group, quote, 85% of parents with children under age 13 believe they have primary responsibility for teaching their children about religious beliefs and spiritual matters. However, a majority of parents don't spend any time during a typical week discussing religious matters or studying religious materials with their children. Parents generally rely upon their church to do all of the religious training their children will receive. But you see, what this means is we're unwittingly teaching our children that you meet with God on Sunday and we don't talk about him during the week. We don't glorify him. We don't worship him. We don't think about him during the week. We're thinking about all other kinds of things that are flooding into our minds, cluttering our minds constantly through our, our, our devices, our screens, but not thinking about the Lord. This is a very practical way to reinforce the love and rule of Christ in our homes daily and a key part of raising our covenant children in the Lord. The last thing I want to mention this morning is the church, the church. And so we seek first the kingdom of God personally in our homes and families and in the church. How do we do this? Very, very briefly. I'm not going to cover all of this this morning. But first of all, gather faithfully. Gather. Be here. Show up when you feel like it, when you don't. In season and out of season. Just be here. Just be here. You know, in the early church, there were Christians who said, I don't think I'm going to go to church today. You know how I know that? Because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it encourages believers to not forsake the gathering of uh, meeting together, not neglecting to meet together. Now listen, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is gathering together, it's gathering together in God's presence, not just for the vertical blessings of hearing God's word and receiving his truth and, and, and being reminded of his love for us, but it's a, it's a mutual encouragement as well. It's horizontal. That's the other dimension of worship. Our very presence and joyful participation in worship is a catalyst to the spiritual growth and encouragement of others. So this is not just about being here, dear ones, for yourself. It's about being here for those around you, sitting next to you. Your spiritual gifts, your encouragement is what the people around you need every Lord's Day. And that's why we come. Uh, secondly, we, are, we come here to mature spiritually, to mature spiritually. The apostle made the maturity of God's people, the apostle Paul, their pri his primary concern. And listen to what he says here in Colossians 1, 28, 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, now listen, mature in Christ. We are called to grow and to mature as God's people. And so we come to church to sit under the means of grace. Thirdly, to foster community. To foster community. Listen to what um, uh, this author says uh, about the gathering community. Quote, The church can't just be the place you go on Sundays. It must become the center of your life. 
That is, you may visit your house of worship only once a week, but what happens there in worship and the community and the culture it recreates must be the things around which you order the rest of the week. Christians in the world are not expected to live at the same level of focus and intensity as cloistered monks, but we should strive to be like them in erasing as much as possible the false distinction between church and life. In other words, church isn't just something we come to and forget about. The church is the body of Christ. The church are the members of Christ. We are here with and for each other in our relationships, in our schedules, in our prayers, in our thoughts. The church is an organization. It's also an organism. It's not just a building. It's the people of God. Finally, we are called to give financially. I don't talk about this much from this pulpit, but it's so important that we recognize that we are to give back to God of the first fruits of all that we make. Here we have the principle of the tithe. Uh, so 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 says this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So don't be captured, dear ones, by the seductive voices of consumerism. Seek first the kingdom of God through your finances. Make the first point of your financial freedom giving towards that which Christ has given his very life and towards the mission that seeks to make his name known in every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, dear ones, as we close, as we close, you remember what Jesus says right before he says, seek first the kingdom of God. He said, don't be anxious about your life, what you wear, what you eat. Don't be anxious about those things. And he also said, don't seek those things like the Gentiles do. You see, it's the Gentiles that are seeking first all of those things. But as believers, Jesus calls us, as his people, we are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his saving righteousness and the ways of righteous living. Seek first the kingdom of God through communion with God and all these things that are mentioned in this passage will be given to you. And finally, as we go to the Lord's table, seek God's saving righteousness and atoning blood alone for your salvation. Living a disciplined life will not save you. Getting your act together in 2023 will not save you. The works of the law will not justify you or me. We are saved by grace through God-given faith faith in Christ. And so rest in him alone for your salvation and remember why he has saved you, to restore you to communion and fellowship with God and so that in him you would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Dear one, don't be anxious and fearful in 2023. Whatever may come, seek first the kingdom of God and all things will be added to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this promise. And we pray that by your grace, we would indeed rest 
our faith in Christ alone for our salvation and united to him that we would live as his disciples, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following you on the narrow and the hard way, the way that is against the world, but is always for the world, for we want to be shining witnesses for you in this generation. We pray in Jesus' name.